Uh, now, also, now tonight I want to remind you, to, is, in case you don't know, that today is the New York primary. Uh, and it's quite clear that Donald Trump is going to win the Republican uh, votes tonight. And if he gets over 50%, he gets all 95 uh, delegates uh, from New York. Uh, of course, Cruz will probably come cruising in and try to figure out how to take 75 of those away uh, by changing the rules. But the, the bottom line is it looks like uh, he'll, he'll probably win by 10 percentage points. Uh, and, but, it, but it's possible that Kasich will come in second uh, and that Cruz will come in third. That would be at least interesting. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's clear that that whole affair is shaping up to having the Republican National Committee uh, pretty much succumb to the pressure of Trump to, uh, to agree that if he gets very close to the, uh, the uh, number of votes that he has to have uh, to win the, win the uh, nomination, that they're not going to fight him. They're not going to allow, number one, they're not going to allow, apparently, a change of the rules by the Rules Committee, uh, even though they had previously announced that, uh, that according to the protocols, once the convention is convened, uh, the Rules Committee has a right to make up any rules they wanted, and they, they tried to make a run at, at getting that established so that they could change the rules to keep Trump out uh, but Trump has thrown such a series of temper tantrums about this publicly that uh, they're they're going to be inclined to not do that. Uh, but still, if if he doesn't get the uh, the number of the 1,236 that he needs uh, by the time of the uh, of the convention in Cleveland, uh, he's going to throw such a fit that he's going to try to get uh, whatever the number is he falls short from the superdelegates to vote for him uh, on the first ballot. So to get the first ballot established. So that's, that's the dynamic you want to look at is that it's 95% likely he's not going to get the full number of delegates he needs, the elected delegates before the convention. So the focus is going to be on the superdelegates to make up the 35 to 40 that he may need. He's going to be coming in around 1,200, uh, somewhere like that, but he needs 1,237. And uh, he's going to insist that, uh, well, he's not going to be able to get the rules changed, that he should win with just 1,200. Uh, he's going to put the pressure on the, the superdelegates in the Republican uh, National Committee, basically members to uh, the, both, both of them, the superdelegates and the Republican National Committee, to agree to allow the superdelegates to vote to give him the, the nomination on the first ballot to avoid the bruja. Uh, now, with, with regard to the Democratic uh, primary in New York, that even if uh, Bernie Sanders were to uh, win tonight uh, by a narrow margin, say 51-49, it, it's still proportional distribution of those delegates and they would pretty much split evenly the, the some 230 delegates that are going to be given in the Democratic uh, primary. So, so Hillary Clinton continues to, to accrue the types of uh, numbers that she needs to march toward uh, her getting the, the number of delegates she needs before the ballot, and it's 99% certain that she's going to get 
the number of uh, delegates she needs before the convention so that the, the dynamic, as I mentioned to you, at the Democratic National Convention is going to be determining what type of, uh, number one, whether or not she's going to pick Bernie Sanders as her VP. Uh, and if she does indicate an interest in doing that, what type of agreements he's going to be able to extract from her as to what kind of a role he's going to play in the administration, rather than being shunted off into, you know, cutting ribbons and uh, in welcoming the you know ambassador from Tasmania uh, when when he comes to town, so that so that that's the the major dynamic you need to look at there. Uh, if if in fact he were to win, you you can you'll you will see CNN and the others, the other major networks, be starting to jump up and down about uh, how this changes the whole whole campaign and and it's going to be a real contest going to the convention. None of which is true. Uh, so we just need to, to know that. But so so I just wanted to call everyone's attention to this thing tonight, so you can you can check in uh, later on this evening and see what the results are that are coming in. Okay. Now uh, the we ha we have uh, last Thursday while I was gone, you you got to get a look at uh, one of the presentations that I made. I think it's up in University of Oregon. Uh, about an in-depth analysis of the worldviews and what the underpinning uh, belief systems are that go into causing a person to become an adherent to one or another of the worldviews. We began briefly uh, last Tuesday, a week ago, just introducing the general scheme to you of what the worldviews are all about. But it's important for me to emphasize that this basic analysis underlies uh, everything that we're doing basically in the course because it's an attempt to get you to understand and appreciate the differences in worldviews that underlie the kind of confrontation that takes place uh, among the elements of the human family in trying to control public policy. Uh, now, uh, we, have, we have so far in the first quarter of the classes now uh, that we've we've now concluded that the the two major issues that we decided or, or discussed in in that first quarter uh, reflected the importance of these worldviews because the first the first issue that we that we uh, discussed were these 2016 elections uh, and and you were are able to see now and start to appreciate more uh, how it is that Trump kind of reflects the kind of authoritarian worldview uh, of, the, of the big super powerful uh, individual who bullies uh, everyone and, and imposes upon them a certain set of beliefs uh, uh, because he believes that there's otherwise, there's going to be chaos if he is not in charge uh, in demanding personal loyalty to himself, such as those fairly shocking uh, images of the entire stadium of people holding up their hand uh, like this to swear personal loyalty to him in which he was basically communicating to the Republican National Committee that the voters that he was getting were loyal to him personally not to any political party uh, or for that matter even to the country uh, but it was to him and that's a classic kind of uh, uh, manifestation of an authoritarian uh, type of worldview that he has and that uh, Cruz and Rubio uh, very clearly are reflective of the reactionary uh, worldview. Uh, you have Cruz being kind of a champion of the Tea Party, 
who were, were rampantly insisting upon blocking uh, everyone out uh, from coming into the country under the immigration rules and, uh, and uh, setting up a, a fundamental uh, dialectic uh, in, in Rubio actually campaigning with the campaign slogans behind him, the uh, American century that he was campaigning uh, or was campaigning on. And that, as we pointed out, I'll touch upon a little bit later here in the discussion, was the, the new American century was the actual organization that was formed by those extremely reactionary elements that were inside the administration of George H.W. Bush right at the end of the Cold War uh, who had been the authors of that first iteration of the 1992 United States Defense Department policy planning guidance document calling for full spectrum dominance on the part of the United States uh, to be undertaken unilaterally. And you can see that the regular Republican Party, the, Dem the Republican National Committee, is reflective of kind of the old guard in the Republican Party, the establishment, uh, the regular conservatives uh, that for so long dominated the Republican Party, uh, they're having a great deal of trouble with the reactionaries and the authoritarians uh, inside the Republican Party uh, that have ascended into uh, positions of dominance uh, after the end of the Cold War. And the moderates are represented by Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, Al Gore, uh, Joe Lieberman, Richard Gebhardt, all of these people that were the champions of the new Democratic Leadership Conference. Uh, and they are advocating the, the kind of inveterately uh, moderate uh, positions. And the liberals, uh, are, whom, whom you don't see much of uh, in, in this particular contest, the liberals are really FDR kind of uh, New Deal liberals that are in the Democratic Party. There are some 64 to 65 of them uh, that are actually in the House of Representatives that are members of what is inappropriately named the Progressive Caucus. Uh, the Progressive Caucus is a, is a uh, caucus group of the, of the members of the House of Representatives uh, in one senator, Bernie Sanders, is in it. Uh, but they, in fact, come predominantly from uh, congressional districts that have a university uh, all, all across the country. If you actually look to find out what, what is the, the definitive quality of those 64 uh, uh, districts that have these congressmen from them, they all have a major university in them uh, where people think and read books and, and do things like that. Uh, and, and so these are, but, but these are all predominantly liberals. Uh, and, and there's only a, a couple progressives, Bernie Sanders, and actually there's getting ready to be another major progressive, I think, in the Senate, going to be Russ Feingold. Uh, who is running, rerunning for the United States Senate, uh, and he will probably win. Uh, you know, there are other people that, are, that make up classic progressives like Bill Moyers that you see on PBS uh, periodically, uh, and, and the Green Party is struggling to be a, a genuinely progressive party, uh, uh, it's, but it's, it's, it's having difficulty, uh, as you all know, uh, getting traction. Uh, because, in, in my opinion, we can talk about it later in the course, is that it doesn't really have any kind of full grasp on what the predicate beliefs of a genuinely progressive worldview are, uh, and that they, they just kind of uh, patch and paste the, some progressive positions and put them together, and they don't have 
an adequate ethos. They shy away from being uh, uh, the, the kind of spiritually grounded, metaphysically grounded. They shy away from that. Uh, but, we'll, but we'll have a longer discussion about that uh, later in, in the course. And then there's, you, we don't see any utopianists around. Uh, these are the people like Mahatma Gandhi uh, and Sri Aurobindo, who was his lawyer, uh, who spent a lot of time in jail with him. Uh, Sri Aurobindo has written a number of major uh, works uh, on utopian uh, political positions and public policy positions. So that was one of the major issues that we dealt with in the first quarter of the class, uh, these, these elections and how they gave you a, a better understanding of the spread of worldviews that are represented by the, by the various major candidates. And the second issue that we addressed was the activities of the George H.W. Bush administration and the Democratic Party and others in the immediate aftermath of the end of the Cold War. And you remember that we talked in detail about the group that gathered with Dick Cheney and Paul Wolfowitz and, and uh, David Addington and Doug Fife and those others that gathered in the West Wing and formulated that, that 1992 defense policy, uh, calling for full spectrum dominance, et cetera. That, that, that entire, uh, the readings that I had assigned, and I, I hope that you have gotten a chance to read those things, those, those are sections of the, of the, the major 1,500-page uh, essay uh, that, that you won't have to read all of, uh, that was, was actually talking about the activities right leading up to the end of the Cold War in 1989 when Francis Fukuyama wrote the, the major article called The End of History uh, in the National Interest Magazine uh, and started generating this major uh, uh, set of conversations uh, when the Soviet Union dissolved. They all, everybody started talking about, oh yes, there was that article that Fukuyama wrote uh, that, that nobody responded to immediately, and then everybody started responding to him, using his analysis of the end of the Cold War as something to respond to. And I, I laid out for you the, the various responses uh, of the, of the uh, reactionary community to that, uh, the, the progressive, uh, the liberal community and the moderate community. Uh, and, and, uh, and I also directed your attention in that to Samuel P. Huntington, a very important person uh, who was the president of the American uh, Academy of Political Science uh, and was the, the uh, professor of uh, international uh, relations and public policy uh, at Harvard University. Uh, and also the, the, uh, the principal uh, editor of Foreign Policy Magazine uh, of the, uh, of the uh, Trilateral Commission and uh, David, David Rockefeller's uh, group. So that, that this, this debate that went on right at the end of the Cold War among these various groups, people wouldn't have any kind of ability to discern what, this, what the different respective positions meant unless you had some kind of a sense of the underlying worldviews. Uh, this week, uh, starting the second quarter of the, of the course, uh, I, want to, I want to start the discussion uh, that I made reference to the fact that this group, this, uh, this extremely reactionary group inside the George H.W. Bush administration, right at the end of the Cold War, Paul Wolfowitz and Cheney and the others, when 
they, when, when George H.W. Bush lost his bid for re-election for a second term in 1992 in November, this group formed itself into a thing called the Project for a New American Century, uh, taking the lead from a 1941 uh, essay that was, or editorial actually, that was written by Henry Luce in Time Magazine uh, trying to uh, implore the people of the United States not to become involved in the war in, uh, in Europe against Germany uh, and to allow the fascists to win and to kind of openly advocate a fascist uh, economic system in the United States. Uh, that this, that this, uh, this group took the name A Project for a New American Century hearkening back to the American century, which was the name of that editorial. Uh, and and uh, when, I, when I discussed this, I said the editorial that was written by both the Washington Post and the New York Times in response to the leak of that particular first draft began to call it, said this was hearkening back to the robber baron era uh, of gunboat diplomacy and stuff. Those terms were used in both of those editorials. What I want to do today is I want to turn our attention directly toward that uh, or, or to that era so that we'll understand in more detail what that meant because it's still salient. Uh, the, this kind of reactionary takeover of the Republican Party at the end of the Cold War and the, the raising up of these reactionary candidates uh, that, that is dominating even the 2016 election has an entire uh, history to it. Uh, because what happened is that when the Soviet Union on December 31st of 1991 voluntarily withdrew from the field of challenging Western capitalism, uh, what, what, the, what the leadership in the White House at that point did is they said, oh good, uh, that whole thing that started back in October of 1917 with the Bolshevik Revolution, we don't have to worry about that anymore. We can go right back to the same worldview that we had uh, prior to the rise of the Bolsheviks and the mounting of this kind of worldwide socialist uh, campaign against us. And so what they did is they snapped back, as it were, uh, to espousing the same reactionary worldview that was being espoused by the robber barons uh, during this extraordinarily important and fairly brief period uh, of American history from the end of the Civil War in 1868 up until, uh, 18, or up until uh, uh, 1898 with the invasion and occupation of Cuba. Uh, so what I want to do is I want to focus on this particular period so that you can really see how how this, this worldview kind of flowered uh, during that time and came to dominate uh, American policies, both uh, foreign and domestic. Uh, and, and so that this is, uh, what, what we're gonna see here is the, the rise of a worldview that was rooted in an openly social Darwinistic uh, theory, uh, or social Darwinist theory, that in fact there was an elite element in the human family that were sort of biologically uh, more fit to not only rule and govern policies, but indeed ultimately to survive uh, on the planet. And that those that were at the lower end of the biological uh, state of evolution uh, could be allowed to just sort of 
uh, drop out uh, of the, the, the human solution. Uh, and so, so this is what we want to talk about uh, today. So let, let's turn our attention to this period. Uh, it, it, in, in 1868, with the end of the American Civil War, as I said before, there was a, there's always been a whole lot of uh, effort on the part of the American state-run educational system to convince every high school graduate that basically the American Civil War was fought to free the, the black race from slavery. Uh, and while it's clearly, it clearly rose to a point of being a major uh, lever that was used by Lincoln with the Emancipation Proclamation, you need to remember that the federal government and the northern government never issued the Emancipation Proclamation until two years into the Civil War. So the Civil War certainly wasn't started because the North was freeing all the slaves. Uh, what, they, what they had done is they had in fact uh, established a, a line, a demarcation, 38th uh, parallel, in the United States, uh, above which they didn't want to allow any slavery or any states to be admitted into the new union that were pro-slavery. But the, the federal government and the governments of the North still supported uh, and actually had on their books fugitive slave laws. Uh, that, For example, if any black person were found north of the 45th parallel, in the United States, they could be arrested and had to be arrested on site and taken into custody and had to affirmatively prove that they were free. Uh, so there was a presumption operating against any black person anywhere in the United States uh, above the 45th parallel that they were on their way to Canada trying to escape. Uh, and so that so this, uh, this myth that the, the North had this kind of sanctimonious feeling about slavery and that that was the proximate cause of the war, I don't think is entirely accurate. What we, what we really saw happening was the development of a northern industrialist culture, urban-centered uh, industrial culture, uh, where, the, where there was a, uh, a rising importance of factories and uh, the mass production uh, of materials, textiles, uh, the development of the use of water power from the rivers in the north uh, to set up mills for, for, for generating products in, uh, in, uh, in all kinds of uh, 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 sweatshops that were being built all around in the northern area of the country. And this whole urban-based uh, industrial culture uh, was rising up and asserting itself within the federal, within the federal government. Uh, and the rural southern agricultural culture of the South uh, was, was becoming overwhelmed by this. And the American policies were starting to lean toward the, the northern industrialists. And so, so what happened is that the, the, uh, the southern uh, leadership political leadership began to look toward the South to try to establish a, 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 new, a new government, actually. They wanted to have a confederacy that went back to the confederation of the states that you remember that prior to the American Constitution being enacted in 1789, uh, there was from uh, 1776 up until 1789, there was, were the Articles of Confederation and that the colonies were 
confederated into a coalition uh, in, the, in the Continental Congress in which the, the primary sovereignty still resided in the states as, or the colonies as distinct from the federal government. That the uh, urban culture uh, in North America, in, in the United States, or in, in the United States at that time, wanted to have the, the policies of the federal government growingly support the industrialization of the country. Uh, and so the, the Southern political leadership, in light of the fact that there was this Missouri Compromise that was passed that, that uh, didn't allow any new states to come into the American uh, government north of the 38th parallel uh, that would be allowed to have slavery. But you need to remember, the federal government explicitly in that compromise affirmatively authorized the continuation of slavery in all of the states that were below the 38th parallel. And if there were any additional states that came in, uh, there was an argument on behalf of letting those states be, have, to be allowed to have slavery. And the, the Southern political leadership were looking to Texas, which had not been admitted to the Union yet, and to California. That these were the two major kind of treasury troves, and the, they, they, they were largely below the 38th parallel, and so they wanted to get access to those, okay? And uh, so that, that's, that's where the, the real problem began. Uh, and so that when the, when, the southern, when the southern political leadership actually drafted a constitution of the Confederacy before the war, uh, and there was a lot of a sense of that, well, they, we can avoid this war, that they're, they're just going to go forward and they're going to establish a confederacy and they're going to start slowly kind of existentially putting together a, a, a separate government down there. Uh, that the, the, the northern government did not attack them. Uh, that, but, but the problem was that what happened is that certain aggressive forces in the southern uh, political leadership wanted to assert themselves against it. And so that there was this attack that took place uh, against Fort Sumner, and they, they were seizing the armory to take some of those weapons. And the, the federal government, rather than allowing that just to pass and, and let it be considered just an incident, turned the full force of the North on the South to try to stop that. And, and much to everyone's surprise, the, the South fought back very aggressively in this massive civil war took place and it just escalated and escalated. And two years into the war, uh, Lincoln uh, declared the Emancipation Proclamation uh, and began to mobilize the country around this kind of moral ethos of freeing the black race, which wasn't really that strong uh, in the first two years of the war. <clears throat> but I want to direct our attention to the end of the Civil War in 1868 as you know, there, there are entire courses taught on the Civil War itself. But the, at the end of the Civil War in 1868, the, the South was not only uh, beaten, they were crushed. The, the, the Northern military forces uh, resolved that they were going to crush not only the, the military power of the South, but the, the civilian population. Uh, and they, they went in and burnt down entire cities, uh, burnt out uh, plantations, 
and burnt them to the ground. It was, a, it was a, basically a scorched earth policy against the South. Uh, and, and what they did is they, they put into effect uh, a, the, a series of constitutional amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments. And in the 13th amendment, they basically declared that the, that, uh, the black race was freed, there shall be no slavery anywhere in the United States, and that the federal government was empowered to pass statutes to protect the, the previously uh, black slaves. Uh, and in the 14th Amendment, they put in an extremely interesting uh, supplement to this, that over and above simply freeing the black slaves and saying that there was, in fact, going to be federal authority in Congress to pass additional legislation to protect the former black slaves, they put in a much more general uh, provision in the Constitution, the 14th Amendment. They asserted that the federal government was herein <coughs> after going to have the authority to protect the, uh, the rights, privileges, and immunities uh, that belonged to any person who was a citizen of the United States. And that they insisted that there was going to be equal protection provided to every citizen of the United States that they were all going to be entitled to the equal protection of all of the rights, privileges, and immunities of citizens of the United States. And they asserted that no person could be deprived of their life, or liberty, or property without the due process of law. All of these were put into the 14th Amendment. So it quite clearly was intended to be something much more than simply the 13th Amendment, which was directed explicitly to the freeing of the black slaves and the providing of rights to the black slaves uh, and protect, being, having the right to pass legislation to protect the people uh, and anybody who had supported uh, the freeing of the, of the black slaves, uh, white people. And so the, but the 14th Amendment was designed to basically reconceive of the former uh, the United States government so as to place com uh, superior power in the federal government over the state governments uh, in giving the federal Congress the authority to protect the fundamental rights of citizens of the United States no matter what their color was uh, against being discriminated against uh, and they, they also uh, gave the federal government the power to, uh, to regulate uh, all of the commerce, reasserting the Commerce Clause of the, of the uh, original Constitution. So the federal government took onto itself a substantial degree of additional power at the end of the Civil War. Uh, and, and what happened is this was all being conducted by the, nor the northern urban industrialists. No, no. The 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 the, pro the problem was is that the the urban the urban industrialists that were governing the kind of the policies of the northern forces wanted to crush the entire southern economy. I mean, they crushed the economy entirely and, and destroyed the the cotton production, destroyed the, the plantations, destroyed uh, all of their uh, all of their businesses. Uh, it was it was a uh, it was a uh, Many people in, in many of the courses that teach the issue of the, the Civil War 
you know, raise really profound moral questions about what it is that the northern uh, government did to the south because they clearly could have gotten them to surrender uh, without doing all of that. But that there was a desire on the part of the northern urban industrialists to basically replace the agrarian culture with an urban culture. And, and what happened is right at the end of uh, uh, this, this civil war, the urban industrialists began to get their lawyers appointed to the federal courts, into the federal district courts, the federal circuit courts of appeals, and to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, and at the same time, they began to bring uh, litigations into the federal court system that would in fact begin to establish the rights of this new commercial vehicle of the corporations uh, that was new, that, that historically in both England and the United States, the corporations were a special uh, business unit that was created by the state legislature for a purpose that the state legislature had in mind so as to build a canal, to build a, uh, a, uh, a toll road, to build bridges, they, they were there, or to establish a colony, for example. When, when England would, the, the crown would issue a corporate charter to a group to found a colony, such as Plymouth Bay. Uh, that, that it was very clear that this idea of having a, a gathering of individuals to be treated as a corporate group uh, was a very unique uh, item uh, in English and American history. But what happened is at the, end of the, at the end of the Civil War, the northern urban industrialists uh, began to feel their oats and they began to assert themselves and they came up with this, this design of the corporation to be able to engage in just normal business activities. Uh, producing grain, you know, running a railroad, uh, running a shipping line, uh, running a steel company or an iron company. They, they, they began to, their lawyers began to design these corporations to give them unique uh, abilities to, to run a business and to, and to have, to, uh, to sell shares of stock so that the, that the people who actually owned the resources of the, of the company uh, were in fact immunized against any legal liability. And that they brought a number of judicial opinions that asserted that those people who just owned a share of the stock could not be held liable because they did not have the power to make decisions for the company. They simply owned the access to a certain percentage of the profits. Okay? And then, then they, held, they had additional rulings that said that the actual boards of directors of these corporations were not liable either because it wasn't actually the board of directors that were making the decisions, it was the corporation, as if the corporation had some sort of uh, uh, entification of its own. Uh, and then they, in fact, immunized even the management of the corporation even though they were making the day-to-day -day decisions that might injure uh, a person. And so finally, <clears throat> and, and as I said, they kept appointing uh, people from the lawyers for the major corporations into the court system uh, to the point where uh, with, after about a 10-year period uh, in, from between 1868 and 1878, 
you began to get interesting decisions. Uh, like, that, for example, in, in 1882, you got a decision out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which was in the West, in San Mateo Railroad case. Uh, there was a Judge Lorenzo Sawyer, who was in fact a major stockholder in the, uh, in the Union Pacific uh, Railroad, uh, and he entered a ruling in a railroad case uh, in which he, for the first time, and, and this is going to come as a little bit of a surprise for people who are so upset about the Citizens United case, that he, for the first time, ruled that a corporation was a person and that they were actually entitled to all of the safeguards of the 14th Amendment so that the federal courts could actually take steps to protect the fundamental rights of a corporation, the right to property, the right to due process, the other free speech rights so they could engage in, in reckless advertising for their products uh, under the rubric of free speech. That uh, Judge Lorenzo Sawyer was the first one to make this assertion in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, and uh, John D. Rockefeller, uh, the owner of uh, Standard Oil of California and Standard Oil of New Jersey actually issued a statement following that opinion in the San Mateo Railroad case where he said that uh, the age of combinations is now here to stay and the age of the individual is gone, never to return. Uh, and so the, the, it was, they were very clear, the, the Rockefeller and the other type of people that were these these uh, owners of these big corporations, or the major stock of the corporations, they were perfectly aware of what the implications were of these decisions. And they, start, they kept going forward, establishing interlocking directorates of these corporations, to the point where the, the, the major uh, two dozen corporations in the United States had basically the, the same 12 to 20 men uh, on the board of directors of all of them. Uh, even though the, the majority of stock was owned by one or another of these 20 to 30 men. Uh, but they would help each other out in that they would sit in, uh, uh, in authorizing and directing the activities of those corporations so that they would feed advantages to each other. For example, that a, a railway company would, would establish uh, uh, very high rates for the shipping of materials in a given area, and then they would have the, the other people that have, for example, having the oil being shipped on these rails to be allowed to raise their prices to cover the higher rates for the rails, uh, and then they would, would cover, cover the, uh, a, a company that did the refining of the oil to be able to increase their rates and that what they would do is they were coordinating, these 20 to 30 men were actually coordinating the activities of the corporations to mutually benefit each other uh, in extracting higher and higher amounts of uh, income from the populace in selling the end products, uh, in redistributing those profits among the different corporations that were involved in providing one or another aspect of the production of those materials. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and this, this went on, uh, and, and then they began to establish monopolies, that they would actually begin to work together, these 20 to 30 men, that they would actually begin to work together to decide which corporation was going to buy out the stock interest of one of the other corporations to be able to establish 
a vertical monopoly or a horizontal monopoly over, for example, the, the production of a raw material, the transport of that raw material to their plant, the development of that, that, those raw materials into a product, the distribution of those products, that all of the different steps that were necessary in the, 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 the uh, generating and developing into a product of certain raw materials were all owned by the same corporation. And what they began to do is to divide up these various areas of the economy among themselves. And they, they, would all, they were all found, virtually all of them were found to be sitting as uh, private investment clients of a particular private investment house, which was Brown Brothers. Uh, Brown Brothers uh, had existed for, since 1820, uh, but, <clears throat> but around this time, 1868 to 1878, what happened is people like J.P. Morgan, uh, David Rockefeller, or John D. Rockefeller at that time, uh, uh, and, and other major uh, corporate tycoons uh, all came to Brown Brothers and were private investment counselors. And Brown, Brown Brothers uh, actually, uh, their, their own description of themselves, they provide wealth management advice uh, and private investor services for corporations and what they referred to in all of their documents is uh, HNWIs. Uh, and the casual reader wouldn't know what that was talking about. But what the H -H HNWI stands for is high net worth individuals. And so that they actually had as their clients the very same 30 men or so that were sitting uh, on these interlocking directorates and owning the major stock of these 30 to 40 major corporations and that they, they sat there and that they, they had their founding partners uh, of the, uh, of the uh, 16 of the major, major founding partners, 11 of those 16 were all Yale College graduates. And of those 11, eight of them were all members of the Skull and Bones Society, which was this very elite uh, private club that actually existed at Yale University. Uh, and they all knew each other. They all uh, knew each other's sisters uh, and fathers and mothers. They married each other's sisters and brothers. Uh, and what they, what they did is they maintained power virtually like the royal families. Uh, of Europe uh, did, of marrying first cousins and keeping the, the royal line going and, and confining the control of regions of Europe under the same family. And this is what they were doing. And it turns out that, uh, that they were able to provide custody, they called it, in trusts of certain properties, which they would move into the trusts and that the, the trustees were the, the partners, the senior partners at Brown Brothers Harriman for the advantage of the people who put the, the funds into the trust and they were disguising and concealing who all the people were that actually had those resources in the trust. And they considered it a matter of privacy uh, to not let anybody know who was putting the money into these trusts and then they would supervise the trusts for them. And they ended up administering uh, or actually having custody of $3.3 trillion. 
in Brown Brothers Harriman. And they administered an additional 1.2 trillion. Uh, now the 1.2 trillion, we'll find out later what that is, which turns out to be this Anderson Trust that we told you about earlier. But, and, and they also, they also uh, had a law firm that represented Brown Brothers. It was called Sullivan and Cromwell. Uh, and both of them right, existed right within three blocks of each other uh, on Wall Street. Uh, and Sullivan and Cromwell represented in their personal capacity these high net worth individuals. And they also represented the corporations that were owned by or the stock that was owned by these high net worth individuals. And as I said, they, they were right within three blocks of each other on Wall Street. Uh, and the, the lawyer from the Sullivan and Cromwell that came over to be the lawyer personally for Brown Brothers, Her or for Brown Brothers at the time, the, court, the, the private investment house, was a man by the name of Alan Dulles. Uh, and what, what I want to review here for, for a minute is uh, this, this fellow, Alan Dulles, who, who became the lawyer for uh, Brown Brothers, uh, harkens back to a, a very interesting period in history. Uh, this period I was telling you about from 1868 to 1898, that, that while this process was going on, of these major corporate lawyers being appointed to the federal bench to make these kinds of rulings to empower the corporations and to immunize the owners of the stock, the boards of directors, and the, uh, and the management. Uh, it, while, while all of that was going on, they were also moving in on the government and that they were becoming more and more dominating uh, with regard to government policies. They were actually paying corporate money out to congressmen and senators who sat on the various committees to draft legislation to benefit them and also to give federal land to the railroad corporations, for example, that they would give them tens of thousands of acres of land uh, and then they would give federal grants to the railroad company to help subsidize the building of railroads. Uh, arguing that it was benefiting the country to have a rail line out into those, those uh, new areas so that those who were producing materials out there could ship them back to the cities. And so that the, you, you began to develop this entire theory of the federal government subsidizing the development of, of resources and equipment for the railway companies the uh, oil production companies, the makers of iron and steel, uh, th they were subsidizing these major corporations. And yet the major corporations, the owners of the stock in the corporations, were allowed to reap the private profits from the sale of, of all of those materials. And at the same time, they were dominating the, the legislature to start to look out to find areas where the, the corporations could get access to additional natural resources. And so the, this began this entire period of manifest destiny, uh, the, the desire for acquiring other territories, uh, Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, the, the private investors in Brown Brothers Harriman uh, involved the owners of United Fruit Corporation. Uh, 
in the United Fruit Corporation was represented by Sullivan and Cromwell, and they actually undertook legal action to secure the right to have uh, the, the Panama Canal. They got, they got the uh, United States Congress uh, to uh, enter into a treaty with England uh, saying that the United States uh, would, would, would share the rights with England for any, uh, for any uh, uh, inter-oceanic uh, canal that was built in either Nicaragua or Panama. And then as American power grew, uh, they just flat out defied the treaty uh, at the behest of the corporations, the shipping corporations, uh, and the company that built the Panama Canal that was represented by Sullivan and Cromwell. And that, so, so what I'm saying is that these, these 30 or so men that sat on the boards of directors, the interlocking boards of directors of these 20 to 30 corporations, uh, had the same law firm and they engaged in coordinated investment of their monies. They, uh, they were partners in the trusts that were being uh, constructed by Sullivan and Cromwell and Brown Brothers Harriman. And they rose to a position of power whereby in 1893, uh, the, the uh, Secretary of State for the, the, the Harrison, uh, William Henry Harrison's administration, by 1893, the Secretary of State, whose name was John W. Foster, uh, was promoting the extension uh, of power on the part of the United States out into the Pacific, saying that they wanted to open up the markets of Asia for the major corporations. Uh, and they took over the Hawaiian Islands. And, and John W. Foster, when he, he sent United States military forces into the Hawaiian Islands to seize the Hawaiian Islands, and when asked what the justification was for that, he said, that the, the royal family in Hawaii didn't have adequate motivation to develop the resources of that island, and so therefore they were not entitled to govern. And so therefore they would put into power the white business people that were there who would make the, the products of the island available for American corporations. Uh, and so that they began that process uh, and so, so that, that fellow John W. Foster was also involved in helping to prepare the way for taking over the island of Cuba uh, in Puerto Rico. And so what they were doing is they were secretly funding the supply of weapons and arms and helping to organize a revolutionary group to try to overthrow the government in, in both uh, Cuba and in Puerto Rico. Uh, and in, as, of, as of 1893, uh, John W. Foster was, was viewed, he, he became the Secretary of State following a fellow by the name of Blaine, B-L-A-I-N-E, who was the Secretary of State throughout the entire period of leading up to this kind of imperialist era. And uh, then in came John W. Foster. Uh, so these two guys together, Blaine and Foster, were the Secretaries of State who basically choreographed the entire kind of uh, age of imperialism of the United States. But the fact is that they were doing it functionally at the behest of the owners of these major corporations. And so that you had this, this group of these 30 men or so that were basically sitting on top of the world, that they were basically uh, making millions of dollars apiece 
Uh, they had their, their monies were being administered by Brown Brothers Harriman, put into trusts in making more money, and actually buying stock in other companies that were competitors. So they were buying out potential competitors uh, and establishing both vertical and horizontal monopolies over the major, uh, the major products of, of, the, uh, of the country. Uh, and, and then they, they began, very interestingly, they began to use the 14th Amendment their lawyers who were in the federal court system, they began to use the 14th Amendment to protect the corporations. Even though it was clear that the 13th and 14th Amendment had been designed 13th for the black people uh, who had been former slaves and to protect them and the 14th Amendment to establish the right of citizens so that they would not be discriminated against and deprived of fundamental rights, privileges and immunities uh, by the states. Uh, what they did is actually, uh, actually uh, between, uh, between 1862 uh, and 1890, uh, there, were, there were actually uh, only 19 cases decided under the 14th Amendment that related to the rights of private citizens. And there were over 228 cases that uh, addressed the rights of corporations. Uh, and they ascended all the way to the point where in, uh, in 1886, in a case called Santa Clara County versus the Southern Pacific Railroad, they actually entered the opinion that corporations were people, were a person that was entitled to the rights, privileges, and immunities of citizens of the United States. Uh, and, uh, and that was... That was uh, uh, the two of the major justices that ruled on that were major stockholders in the railway company that was the subject of the litigation. Uh, now, so it was at the time. And, it, and, and very interestingly, here, here's a little, a little side note on history. It turns out that in the case of Santa Clara County versus the Southern Pacific Railroad, at the beginning of the oral argument uh, in the Supreme Court, the, uh, the Chief Justice, Waite, his name was, he announced that they were not going to hear any arguments on the question of whether or not corporations were a person protected and entitled to the rights, privileges, and immunities of a citizen of the United States uh, as a person. They weren't going to take any of those arguments in the case because all the justices, uh, he felt, uh, believed that they were a person. Uh, and so the headnote on the case as reported in the official court reporter, the United States court reporters, the top head note said that this case decided that corporations were persons entitled just like a natural person to the protection of the 14th Amendment to the rights, privileges, and immunities of citizens of the United States. Uh, and it turns out that the person who wrote that head note was the lawyer and former owner of the Newburgh, New York Railway Company, who was the court clerk for the United States Supreme Court. And you had two of the justices on the Supreme Court that were lawyers for the railway companies. Uh, and they were ruling, they then put into federal law nationwide the same principle that had been set forth in the San Mateo Railroad case uh, in 1882, four years earlier, by Judge Lorenzo Sawyer, a major stockholder in Union Pacific Railroad. So that the, the, the takeover 
of the federal system and the federal judicial system and the federal Congress and the Senate uh, by the owners of these major corporations, largely the railway corporations, the petroleum corporations, the, the uh, iron and steel uh, magnates, was, uh, was virtually complete uh, by, by, 18, uh, by 1898. Uh, and then they engaged in this major Spanish-American war where they, they basically funded uh, people to rise up as rebels in Cuba and then went in to support them. Uh, upon the, the sinking of the USS Maine. There was, there was a, a U.S., you wonder why a U.S. battleship was sitting in the harbor in Havana, but it was there, uh, and it, uh, it sank. Uh, and the U.S. used that as an excuse to send U.S. military forces in to seize Cuba, and at the same time, seize the Philippine Islands in the Pacific, uh, because they were both trust territories of Spain. And when they invaded Cuba, uh, under this pretext of the sinking of the Maine, they, they moved in and just seized the Philippine Islands and took them in as a U.S. protectorate. Uh, and so the, this, this fellow who was there, John W. Foster, it becomes very important for us later, so I want to cover a little bit of it now, and then we'll get back to it uh, again later. But John W. Foster, his two grandsons, were John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles. And what John W. Foster did is he retired at the end of 1893, the very same year that Alan Dulles was born, uh, and, and bought a large uh, resort compound up on one of the Great Lakes in northern New York. Uh, and he, he direct, devoted his attention to training these two guys into adopting and fully understanding and explicating the same ethos, the same colonial uh, Darwinist ethos that he in fact had promoted and fostered as the Secretary of State. Uh, and in, in fact, I think I mentioned it to you that Alan Dulles, <clears throat> when he was eight years old, wrote an essay in school defending the Dutch Boers who had taken control of South Africa. Uh, the white apartheid government that was set up there. And Alan Dulles wrote an essay in school defending them. And uh, John W. Foster was so proud of this that he got it published. And he carried little copies of it around, handing it out to his various government officials around Washington, sort of paving the way for his two young grandsons, John, w. Or John Foster Dulles and Alan Dulles. <coughs> uh, John Foster Dulles ending up becoming the Secretary of State uh, in, under, in 1952 under Eisenhower. And Alan Dulles, who had become a senior partner in, in Sullivan and Cromwell and was the lawyer for Brown Brothers, ending up becoming the head of the Central Intelligence Agency when it was created. Uh, and so that this, this conscious... Uh, embracing of this particular ethos, uh, which was, which, and I want to get into a little bit of detail about it, because what we're dealing with is a, an entire group of these 30 men who are really authoritarians. They're not just reactionaries, they're authoritarians. They're the type of people that believe that they lend order to an otherwise chaotic world. 
that they, through the assertion of their kind of individual power and dominion, actually uh, establish order in the world. But what they, what they develop is they develop an, uh, an attitude of promoting and fostering a public belief in a reactionary worldview because they want to get people all riled up against some ultimate other so that they can have the people of the country uh, be engaged in supporting uh, actions on the part of the government which are actually designed to promote and protect their interests, the 30 guys, uh, in the owners of these major corporations. So that they get, they get all, uh, they, for example, they would, they would, uh, there would be, they, they owned major publications as well, uh, these people. That they, uh, just like Henry Luce, ended up owning Life Magazine and Time Magazine and Fortune Magazine, et cetera, uh, a multi-millionaire. Uh, and, and a reactionary. And that these, these guys would end up setting up these propaganda campaigns through their media uh, of the people getting everybody all het up uh, about certain groups that they wanted to invade, basically. And so what they would do is they would, they would fund the rebels against the government in Cuba. And then when any of the rebels got caught and executed, what they would do is they would have this huge publicity campaign about how awful and horrendous the government of Cuba was because they executed these people. Uh, and that the, the people who were on the receiving end of these types of uh, communications just swallowed it up. You know, just, just like drink the Kool-Aid. Uh, and so that they would then start to be available to be supportive of policies that were being advocated by people in the Congress and the House and Senate who were basically bought and paid for by the corporation owners. Uh, and so that this, this whole period of the robber baron era that went on during this period from the end of the American Civil War up to basically the beginning of World War II uh, was, was generating on the international level a major aggressive imperialist uh, policy, foreign policy on the part of the United States seizing and putting under their control areas of the world that the corporations wanted to have access to for developing their natural resources and for having markets that they wanted to have. Uh, and so that, that's, what, that's what was going on during that entire, during that entire period. Now, that it, it's important to understand the kind of aggressive and completely effective nature of what it was that these people were doing. Uh, and, that, uh, and so that what, what happened is, and I've, I've mentioned it to you earlier, the policies, uh, the domestic policies of these people were establishing these kind of sweatshops in factories, uh, in oil production facilities, and other things where the, the care that was taken for the workers was virtually non-existent that the people would be injured, the people would be contaminated, that people would be poisoned by chemicals uh, in, the, in the, uh, the fuel production uh, uh, industry. Uh, they, were, they were injured in the textile mills. They were breathing in the cotton dust, uh, giving them brown lung disease. Uh, they had these uh, huge textile uh, plants where the women worked and they would work like 12 hour days. Uh, having to having to sew and, and, uh, and make textiles, 
and, and there were a number of major incidences where the, they would actually, they would only get one bathroom break uh, for a 12-hour day. Uh, and uh, and it, it was just, the, the conditions were abominable. And they actually had a couple major instances because what they would do is they would lock the doors where the women were working in these textile plants and laundry plants, etc. Uh, so they couldn't get out to go to the bathroom without permission. And a fire would break out and like, you know, a hundred women would be, would be killed in the fire. Uh, and there'd be no, no insurance for them, no remuneration uh, for them for having uh, suffered the consequences. Uh, people that were injured lost a hand or lost an eye and any of these plants were, were given, they were just fired immediately. There was no care taken for them, no health uh, coverage for them, etc. And so what happened is there, there arose in the country uh, this major uh, arising sense of first uh, fear of these people, then anger at these people, uh, and then there was a desire to try to do something about this. But people, regular people, felt kind of helpless in the face of these powerful people and their powerful corporations, and they didn't quite know what to do. So what happened is in 1874, now this is, this is, Coming out in 1874, the, the National Board of Homeland Ministries of the United Methodist Church, and I've touched upon this earlier, uh, they in fact decided what they were going to do is they were going to start training all of their Sunday school teachers uh, to understand how it was that the various policies of these major corporations and these robber barons actually contradicted basic Judeo-Christian social ethical values. Uh, and so they invited them all to come, uh, anyone who was going to be a Sunday school teacher in the United Methodist Church, anywhere in the United States, they were invited to come with their spouse and their children to come for free up to northwestern New York, uh, outside of Buffalo, uh, to uh, the to the uh, the Lake Chautauqua, which was a resort, a summer resort that was actually owned by the United Methodist Church, and that the the school teachers could, or the, me, the the Sunday school teachers could then be in residence with their spouse and their children all during the summer for three months, uh, free of charge, and be taking classes uh, to understand how it is that the policies. Uh, of the robber barons were contrary to Judeo-Christian social ethics. And so they could teach the people attending their Sunday schools about this. This went on from uh, 17, uh, in, and they, they invited them to come in, in uh, 1874. And in the summer of 1874, I told you before, is that so many people came uh, that, that they, they, were, they were having a very positive response to this. So they sent them back into their churches around the country and were teaching people about this. But the, the board of directors between 17, 1874 and 1878 figured that this was moving too slowly. It wasn't having an, a dramatic enough effect upon the country and the policies. So in 1878, they issued an invitation to all of the social studies teachers in the entire United States to come with their spouse and their children to come to Lake Chautauqua and to participate in these same courses. 
and you're, you're, I've, told, I've told you this all before, but I'm trying to put it in the context now of this arising in the face of this kind of onslaught uh, of these basic corporate moguls uh, owning and controlling all of the major resources in the country and the, the industries and, and uh, fostering and promoting these terrible policies with regard to the mines where they had little kids in the mines. I told you these little six and seven year old kids in the mines working 12 hours a day uh, so they could get into little places to bring in the, the dynamite and put it into small crevices. Uh, they had women working 12 hour shifts in these, these textile mills. <clears throat> they had the men uh, working in the mines and in these factories uh, losing hands and arms and eyes uh, with, no, with no protection. Uh, and so, so what happened is the, the uh, people started to organize uh, against them, but they didn't, they didn't quite know how to do it. They didn't have any concept in mind as to how to organize against them. And so, so what happened is the, uh, the uh, Board of Homeland Ministries invited all the high school social studies teachers to come to Lake Chautauqua in the summer of 1878. Uh, and so many of them came. As I said before, they didn't have any place to house them. They didn't have enough food for them. And so the, all the people in the community around Lake Chautauqua, up around uh, uh, Buffalo, New York, everybody started, all the neighbors started inviting them to come and stay in their homes. Uh, they would provide food for them. And then they would go to the, they would go to the uh, Lake Chautauqua for the, for the classes. And so there was this extraordinary event took place in the summer of 1878 that was just like Woodstock. <clears throat> that you've heard about that happened back in the, in the 70s, actually. Uh, uh, or the 60s, actually, 1968. Uh, and so that it was the beginning of a major progressive movement in the United States. And it was being uh, promoted and generated, actually, by the Board of Homeland Ministries of the United Methodist Church. But they were getting right down onto articulating some of the policies of these, uh, of these robber barons and attacking them. Uh, and one of the first things that they did is they recommended that people who were workers, who were employees working for any of these major corporations to organize themselves into labor unions. That they would all participate in a labor union and they would, everybody would agree that they would have the union make decisions collectively and if they, if they would agree, they would go out on strike and they would strike against uh, some of these major, major companies. And so, so this happened, this began to happen. There was a, a major railroad strike uh, took place. The people that worked for the railroads uh, organized uh, in Baltimore uh, in the Maryland, and they they uh, organized a, a major strike. What what and uh, and the governor, the governor John Carroll, called in the National Guard against them uh, and basically killed them, killed a dozen of the of the strikers. Uh, and uh, the the uh, the railroad baron Thomas Alexander Scott uh, said uh, because they were. They were insisting upon having a living wage uh, so they could buy bread for their children. And uh, the railroad baron, Thomas Alexander Scott, said uh, that the rioters should be, quote, given a, a diet of rifles for a few days and see how they like that kind of bread. Uh, 
And so the, the, in light of the, when the people were killed uh, there by the National Guard, uh, there were huge riots on the part of the labor union people. And they destroyed uh, a number of uh, locomotives and the, uh, the militia men came in and killed uh, 20 more of the workers. Uh, and then in Reading, Pennsylvania, they marched in sympathy uh, for the, the Pittsburgh uh, strikers and, uh, and they blocked the rail traffic and the state militia was sent in uh, and killed 16 additional workers. And then in Chicago, uh, the, the people that worked for the, uh, the railroads uh, organized and went on strike. Uh, and Rutherford B. Hayes sent in the federal troops to put down the strike. Uh, and, so, and then in 1886, uh, in 1886 uh, this, is now, this is now 10 years in, uh, to teaching these courses in the Chautauqua movement, uh, the, the uh, railroad workers in Chicago uh, organized themselves and went on strike, uh, and the police opened fire on them uh, because they found out that the Pinkerton Agency had infiltrated them. Uh, the, the, the companies, the companies, the corporations, hired members of this private, quote, private detective firm called the Pinkertons. And the Pinkertons would infiltrate the labor unions and actually get people elected into positions as the secretary of the labor union. And then they would know who all the people were who were members of the union. And then they would be fired by the company. Uh, and when the people, when the people uh, discovered that they were being infiltrated by the Pinkertons, by the corporation, they went on strike. Uh, and there was a, a big strike that was called in the Haymarket Square in 1886. Uh, and a bomb exploded, uh, and, uh, and the, uh, one police officer was killed uh, in the bomb, in the bombing, uh, and they opened fire on the, on the crowd, uh, killing over 50 people uh, among, among the strikers. Uh, and uh, and this, this continued, the, these, these kinds of strikes went on from 1886 all the way to 1888, uh, and there was the, in 1893, there was a major strike uh, in the, the Pullman, uh, the, the Pullman, uh, George Pullman is the guy that uh, built the Pullman car. They had these uh, luxurious, luxurious Pullman cars for sleeping and uh, having dining rooms and stuff for the wealthy. And they were making these uh, Pullman cars. And the resident, he built, a, he built a town for the people working in the factory that built the Pullman uh, car, car carriages, uh, and you had to live in the town. You got paid with script, and you had to buy things at the company-owned store, and you had to pay rent on the house to the company, and so that the people would come to the end of the month, and they would only be getting like three or four dollars uh, a, a month because they had to use the rest of it for the rent and paying for the goods that they had to buy at the store, which were all much higher priced than anywhere else. And so that what, ha what happened is uh, in 1893, uh, there was a, a recession in the, in the United States, uh, but Pullman uh, lowered, lowered all the pay for the people building the Pullman uh, carriages but he didn't reduce any of their rents or the cost for any of the materials in the, in the little company-owned town where they worked. And Eugene Debs, uh, who had been a speaker at the, at the Chautauqua movement, uh, 
uh, gatherings, along with Susan B. Anthony and uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and, uh, and uh, Clarence Darrow uh, and a number of other uh, social activists, social reformists, uh, were involved in traveling around in these Chautauqua meetings around the country. Uh, Eugene Debs, in 1893, uh, organized the railway workers uh, and, and put them together into a, into a union uh, called the American Railway Union. And they organized all the people that worked for the railroads, all the way from those that built the, the Pullman cars to those who sold tickets, to the conductors, uh, to, to everybody that worked in the, in the industry. And uh, they, they went on strike. Uh, and 250,000 workers for the railroads uh, went on strike uh, in 27 different states. And uh, Grover Cleveland, uh, uh, the, the president of the United States then, a fur, uh, uh, got uh, Attorney General Richard Olney uh, of, of Chicago, uh, a railroad attorney, a former railroad attorney, who was still on a retainer actually by the railroad corporations for $10,000 a year while he was the attorney general of Illinois, uh, called in the, the, uh, the military against them and they sent 12,000 federal troops into Chicago. Uh, and they gunned down the, the strikers. The 30 of them were killed in the first day, uh, wounding uh, 57 additional ones. Uh, and Eugene Debs was arrested uh, was arrested uh, for leading this, this strike and was held responsible for these deaths even though they were done by the, uh, by the uh, military. Uh, and, uh, and he was defended by Clarence Darrow who was another speaker on the Chautauqua circuit. So what you see is actually at both ends within the robber baron elite you have a fairly small group of men some 30 men or so that are the owners of a majority of the stock in these major corporations. They, they meet together as private investment clients of Brown Brothers Harriman. They are represented by the same law firm in their private interests, their legal interests. They're members together in trusts that have been put together by Brown Brothers Harriman, the lawyers for the trusts of which are uh, Sullivan and Cromwell. So that at that end of the spectrum, you have a very elite group of men making all of these policy decisions. And yet on the, on the other hand, the Board of Homeland Ministries has organized these Chautauquas all around the country, but they too have a cadre of some three dozen or so of these major speakers that are directing the attention of the people who attend these Chautauquas to certain specific policies with regard to these corporations. And so that you have people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony and the others organizing the women who work in a lot of these textile mills and clothing uh, making places, trying to organize them into unions and trying to, but the men in the unions were, were discriminating against the women. And so the women began to organize to have the right to vote. And in 1919, they actually get the right to vote and it came all out of the Chautauqua gatherings in the labor unions that were being created that, that brought out the people on strike against the uh, railway companies were all organized. Those unions were organized as a result of the Chautauqua movement advocating the specific creation of labor unions. Uh, and they, they advocated uh, federal laws 
that protected children from being uh, employed in the mines. Uh, and they began to try to impose health standards with regard to these, uh, these sweat lodges, or, or sweat, excuse me, these sweatshops, rather. Uh, uh, sorry. Uh, but but the, the, so the, 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 there, began, there began to be this growing confrontation between uh, these self-conscious robber barons who had developed an entire ethos of social Darwinism uh, that backed up uh, their worldview uh, in, in set upon the workers. And the workers and the, the, uh, the people of the country that were being victimized by the high prices of these monopolies were being organized by the Chautauqua movement. Uh, in that you, ha you had, just to let you know how, how far this had gone, uh, by 1891, by 1891 in Idaho, uh, the, the workers in the, in the mines were being paid uh, $3 a day uh, for working in the mine in uh, $10 million in silver and gold were being shipped out of the Coeur d'Alene uh, mining district in Idaho uh, every year, but the people were being paid only $3 a day uh, in very dangerous conditions. Uh, and in 1892, the mine owners increased the, the day from 10 hours to 12 hours that they were going to have to work with no raise in, in, in their pay. Uh, and then they increased the work from six days a week to seven days a week and stopped giving them Sundays off. And so the, the, uh, so the, uh, the people went on strike. They actually organized a strike copying the railway workers. They organized a thing called the, the Western Federation of Miners. And they organized a labor union. And they, they went on strike. Uh, and it turns out that the, the Pinkertons infiltrated them and started identifying who all of the, the leaders of the strike were, and so they fired them. Uh, and then the, uh, they, they uh, sent in, uh, they, they began to have the, the, the labor organizing was working, that they were getting more and more people to join the union, and then they agreed to have all the people uh, who worked for the mines in whatever capacity, in the offices, in the deep in the mine, in, in distribution or anything, all of them they organized into the same union of the, uh, the, the, Feder the Western Federation of Mine Workers, uh, and they went on strike. Uh, and the, uh, and the, the company started firing all the members of the union. And so what happened is uh, in, in 1899, they had organized all of the mines in Idaho, except for one of them, uh, the Bunker Hill Mine. Uh, and the mine superintendent, Albert Burke, declared publicly that he'd rather have the mine, mine shut down and remain closed for 20 years, rather than allow a union to be organized there. So what happened is on April 29th of 1899, uh, a a large number of the members of the uh, Western Federation of Miners hijacked a train and, uh, and, and commandeered it and drove into the Bunker Hill Mines uh, and they, uh, they organized uh, placing dynamite throughout the mines and blew them up. Uh, and the, what, what happened is the uh, McKinley, uh, President McKinley, sent in federal troops 
and a major uh, war uh, commenced, actually. Uh, and, and this is something that, again, you probably have never heard about this, but a, a major shooting war went on between the members of the Western Federation of Miners and the United States military troops that had been called back from the Spanish-American War uh, in 1899 from invading Cuba and they brought them back home and sent them into Idaho to quell the mine, the mine strike. Uh, and that, that fight went on uh, in 1899 for about 18 months uh, with casualties being taken, heavy casualties on both sides until there was finally an agreement that the, that the, mine, that the, the union would be, would be recognized. But what happened is that the, the, the company the mining company organized uh, the uh, Association of Mine Owners. And so they, they actually formed a group of mine, mine owners to coordinate all of their activities to try to bust the union again. Uh, and what they did is they, uh, a very peculiar thing happened uh, uh, that the former governor of Idaho who had called in the, the troops with McKinley against the mine workers he was blown up. Uh, the, the governor was, he, he had just gotten out of, uh, retired from being the governor, and he came home one uh, December 20th, uh, opened the gate to his house, and was blown up by a bomb. And within hours, uh, a young man by the name of Harry Orchard, uh, who actually looked a lot like Lee Harvey Oswald, actually, uh, when you see photographs of him. But anyway, he came and turned himself in and said he's the one that put the bomb on the fence of the governor uh, and led the, led the law enforcement people to his hotel room and showed them the makings of the bomb uh, and then said, oh, by the way, I was hired by Big Bill Haywood, the head of the uh, Western Federation of Miners, to kill the governor. Uh, no evidence whatsoever against uh, anybody else except him. Uh, and what happened is the, the Attorney General of Idaho, Jess Hawley, put together a group of, of people uh, and they went down on a train, they went down into Denver and kidnapped Big Bill Haywood uh, and put him on a, a boxcar and brought him back into Idaho and put him on trial for the murder. And uh, Clarence Darrow, uh, one of the major Chautauqua speakers, uh, came in to defend him. Uh, and basically exposed the fact that Harry Orchard actually worked as an undercover informant for Pinkertons uh, and was paid by the mine workers, uh, the mine owners, rather, association. Uh, and uh, that was a very famous uh, national trial. Uh, and he was acquitted. And it, and it began to build on uh, the, the labor movement of the country. Now, uh, what, what I, what I, what I want to do now is I want to finish so we can have some conversation about this because I don't want to keep not having our 15-minute conversations at, at the end of these discussions. Uh, and so I, I've gotten us now up to the point where we've gotten to, to the beginning of World War I. Uh, that these, these people have risen up and in, in, uh, asserted control over all the economy of the United States. The Chautauqua movement has generated a major movement for labor unions and uh, child, uh, anti-child uh, em uh, employment uh, legislation. 
the women, uh, the women have organized uh, to uh, organize the, the right to vote. The suffragette movement is fully underway. Uh, and there's major turmoil uh, in the United States of this confrontation between these, uh, these robber barons uh, and this social justice movement that is going on in the United States uh, when World War I breaks out. And it turns out that there is actual conversation going on uh, between the, the uh, federal administration uh, and the German government of the Kaiser uh, and that there's a, a, a gentleman's agreement has been struck that the United States is going to exercise its rights of manifest destiny all over the North American continent and South America. Uh, and then they're going to be moving into the Pacific Ocean over to Asia to develop the Asian markets. And the German government is going to be allowed in Germany to establish hegemony over Europe. And so when the war begins in 1914, uh, when Germany begins to mount a major war, an aggressive war in Europe, the United States refrains from participating in this under the, under the pressure of these major robber barons who say, let's keep out of this. It's not our business. Let's stay out of this. We're going to develop the North American continent, South America, in Asia, and let Germany be in charge over in Europe. And so that, that leads to World War I, uh, and World War I uh, commences in 1914 and has been, is going now for three years uh, up into 1917, uh, when, as you remember, the Bolshevik Revolution occurs in October of 1917, and the Bolsheviks rise up in Russia and withdraw, they overthrow the Tsar Alexander, and they withdraw Russia from uh, World War I and the United States then decides to go in to uh, World War I. And we'll, we'll uh, pick it up there uh, right on Thursday, okay? So now we have, we have 15 minutes so you can ask questions. I have to figure out a better dynamic because I know it kind of catches you off guard when I stop. <laughs> but so I'll, so I'll, I'll try to structure myself a little better so that I'll stop right, right at 5.30 each uh, Tuesday and Thursday class so that we can have 15 minutes of, of discussion. I, I, I know that you may not even have thought of any additional questions, but you can ask me anything you want and we'll have 15 minutes of discussion. There, there must be, after the drink from the fire hose, uh, there must be some, <laughs> some questions that you have, okay? Yes, Sophia. Am I recalling correctly from my high school history class that they marked a square block in the plant too? The, the, well, it's not clear. It's not clear. It's never been determined who it is that detonated the bomb in Haymarket Square. Uh, there have been the, the labor community has always insisted that it was the Pinkertons that set it uh, as as a, an agent provocateur. Uh, it's not clear. Uh, I've been I've been uh, involved in a lot of these cases, uh, and it is quite a uh, a natural thing for people in the movement to assert that the FBI counter-intelligence counter, uh, program or some undercover operations from corporations are instigating these problems. On the other hand, uh, to the extent to which any of the people in the movement are adequately motivated to do the kind of things that may be necessary 
to uh, stand up against these armed uh, opponents, uh, they sometimes uh, do engage in activities that uh, are, take up arms and are willing to use violence. There was a lot of destruction of property in the railway strikes. You know, they burnt Pullman uh, coaches. You know, they, they set fire to them, the, the strikers, uh, saying, you know, that we, we made these things, we're not being reasonably paid for them, so we have a right to destroy them. Uh, and so they did. So there, there was a good deal, it's going to raise this fundamental question about the legitimacy uh, in the use of violence uh, to stand up against these people uh, who are the elite uh, robber barons who in fact will resort to uh, violence uh, in, who have access to the, to the armed violence of the state and federal troops as you've seen, the National Guard, State National Guard, the federal troops are sent in to, to protect the interests of these major people who own the major corporations and have such influence on the, the legislators uh, and the, the executive administrations. And so the question gets raised as to whether or not it's legitimate to use violence uh, on the part of labor union movements or the suffragette movement. That uh, those of you who uh, may have seen the, the recent uh, movie on the suffragettes, uh, I can't remember what the name of it was. Was that suffragette? That's probably why I couldn't remember it. Uh, but yes, the, the, uh, you know, and, and they, they showed that, that some of the women were actually you know, blowing some things up. Uh, and, uh, and, and so I, I thought that was quite candid of the, of the, the movie makers to acknowledge that. Uh, but so, th so these are questions that we'll, we'll come to grips with uh, in the course as we go along. Yeah. Noah, question. Yeah. And, and, you know, these resulted in, like, these huge massacres. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if there's any, you know, it's, I think it's hard for people to picture what that would look like, you know, in, in America right now, to think of federal troops going into, like, a factory strike or, like, the dining hall strikes here, mm -hmm. like, killing 15 people. Yeah, yeah. But that's, like, what was happening. You know, do you see any kind of parallel or, or is there any sort of way that that is manifested in contemporary well, it's, it's interesting that the, we'd have to really go back to the 60s and 70s uh, to have a direct parallel uh, where, you had, where you had the Federal Bureau of Investigation actually infiltrating the anti-Vietnam War movement. You had them infiltrating the National Organization for Women. You had them infiltrating the, the NAACP. Uh, you had an actual conscious program going on on the part of the FBI to infiltrate organizations, unions, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and you had uh, provocateurs being sent in. Uh, I, I, I was fortunate in, in being asked to help represent the, uh, the Panther 21, the, the, pa the Panther, so-called Panther bombing conspiracy trial in New York uh, back in 1970. And uh, what, what happened is that the, uh, that all, I'll tell you exactly what happened. What happened is the, is the, uh, the Black Panther Party had been infiltrated. They were actually uh, publishing the Black Panther newspaper. 
uh, weekly. Uh, they would have on the front page of it, they would have a, a police officer, uh, or a pig actually, <laughs> pig all dressed up in a police officer's uniform and have like seven and eight year old little black kids shooting them in the head, you know, with blood flying out of the head of the pig. Uh, and it would say death to the pigs. You know, and this is the Black Panther Party publishing these things. So you can imagine that the uh, police uh, took a very dim view uh, of that. And in Boston, in Boston, what they did is that every single time that uh, any report came in that a store had been robbed by a young black man, you know, between the ages of 17 and 40, uh, what, the, what the Boston police would do is they would go around and arrest every single young black male who was distributing copies of the Black Panther newspaper. And they would haul them in and they would hold them all day and they would put them in front of lineups, one after another, uh, relating to completely different offenses, hoping that someone would mistakenly identify them uh, as the perpetrator. And then at the end of the day, when it got to be uh, 24 hours later, and in the morning came and they were going to have to let them go or bring them in front of a federal magistrate, they would let them go, but all of their newspapers that had been impounded by the police when they arrested them would all disappear. Uh, and this was going on over and over and over again in Boston. And a similar kind of thing was going on in New York. So what, what I did, I got, I got contacted by John Flynn, a young uh, graduate of Northeastern University Law School, who contacted me over at the Harvard Civil Rights Law Review uh, asking what to do about this. And so I drafted the federal uh, civil complaint under the Federal Civil Rights Act uh, demanding the issuance of a federal court injunction against the Boston police uh, from this practice. And we won. We won the case. Uh, and, uh, and, and so what happened is when I, when I graduated from the law school and went down to New York to the Cahill-Gordon firm, big, big you know, uh, 176 trial lawyer, uh, civil litigation firm, corporate litigation firm on Wall Street, I was authorized to spend 50% uh, of my time doing public interest cases. And then I'd spend another 50% of my time doing regular billable cases for NBC and others. And, and uh, so I, I was contacted by the law commune uh, to come in to help uh, do the defense of the Black Panther Party there because what had happened is one of the members of the Black Panther Party, two of them actually, were driving on the, uh, the East Side Expressway uh, in, 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 in New York along the river and a police car, black and white cruiser, came up behind them and recognized their license plates that they had gathered intelligence from their Red Squad, uh, the Bureau of Special Services, Boss Squad they called them. Uh, it was a surveillance group, a political surveillance group that existed inside the police department in New York and they recognized the car and the license plates, so they came and started ramming them from behind. And, uh, and then the police cruiser pulled out to, and pulled up parallel to the, the two guys in the car that were driving, and the police officer in the passenger side pulled out the service revolver and pointed it over at the driver, uh, at which point the driver reached over and picked up a 357 Magnum and blew the guy completely away. Uh, actually literally blew his head completely off and all over the guy driving and the police driver you know, crashed the car into the side of the road uh, and, the, uh, and the, the police were all called in. He called in you know, the, uh, police with helicopters and everything 
And the, the, dri the driver and the passenger got out and fled up into the hills uh, from there. Uh, and when the police all arrived, uh, they found the car and, they, and a woman was in the back seat, Joan Bird, who was like eight and a half months pregnant. And she was crouched down in the back seat in between the seats and the, and the front seat. And they dragged her out of there and arrested her as an accomplice to murder. And then they, in a, in a flurry, uh, within 24 hours, arrested all 21 of the top Black Panther leadership in the entire state of New York. And they brought them into New York City and began to try to prosecute them. And they put on the stand this guy by the name of White, uh, who was black, uh, who they had infiltrated into the Black Panther Party. Uh, and he was their sole testi guy testifying, saying that in fact they were planning to blow up the Statue of Liberty on the 4th of July. Uh, they were going to be blowing up Macy's and Gimbel's on Thanksgiving Day. Uh, and went on and on with a number of these uh, alleged conspiracies. Uh, all of which he had been trying to talk them into doing. Uh, and this trial went on for, uh, for eight, eight they, they were arrested, they had him in custody with no right to bail for 18 months. We put on the trial and it was a blazing trial, went on, uh, Judge, uh, Judge Murtaugh uh, was the judge uh, who was totally outrageous, uh, tried to actually get a man put on the jury who was the father of one of the police officers, because what, what the police argued is that the reason that they were there is they were following this, this car with the Panthers in it because they were on the east side of the river and they were casing out a place to set up an assassination nest across the entire East River because on the other side of the river was the 42nd Precinct. And so what they asserted was that they were casing out this place because they were going to place a bomb on the, on the building of the 42nd Precinct. And then when all the police came running out from the bomb, they were going to assassinate them at over a mile and a quarter away. Uh, and and the, the district attorney kept on saying, remember, it doesn't have to be possible. It doesn't have to be possible, but if they're conspiring to do it, that we can get them. And so we went on to try, we had a, a, a 18 months went on, and uh, we, we had the trial, and we, uh, it, took the, uh, it took the jury uh, 47 minutes to acquit uh, all uh, 21 defendants on 157 separate uh, uh, counts. And actually, they, they came in with 157 uh, innocent verdicts. And Judge Murtaugh was furious and started pounding the gavel and saying, there's no such thing as an innocent verdict. It has to be either guilty or not guilty. That's all that you can say. And he ordered them back into the jury room, and they came out three minutes later with 157 innocent verdicts again. Uh, and then everybody went ecstatic and jumping up and down, and the whole jury came rushing across the courtroom and started hugging all of us that were the lawyers and jumping up and down. Uh, and I remember, uh, what was his name, Smith? Uh, the ABC, uh, ABC television camera guy or television journalist guy came to me with live television. He said, Mr. Sheehan, he said, uh, doesn't this prove that the system works? And I said, well, if you, if you think in terms of arresting people that are totally innocent and holding them in prison for 18 solid months to try to destroy their entire organization and infiltrating their organization and putting a guy on lying for 18 months, uh, if you consider that working, then I guess the system works. Howard K. Smith, that's who it was. And it went out live over ABC television all across the country. And uh, the senior partners, 
uh, in the law firm the following morning uh, called me in, <laughs> called me in and asked me what I was doing representing people like that. And I said, well, uh, I wasn't representing the people like that. I was representing the Panthers. The other people were on the other side. Uh, and the, those are the kind of people that you guys represent. Uh, and so it began an interesting series of discussions with the senior partners. But anyway, that's just one of the cases.